Hey, good morning, everybody. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, thank you, Greg. We appreciate that very, very much. So, hey, we have been for several weeks now in a study in the book of Daniel, and we've said every week that the book of Daniel is the perfect book to study. for the. It's the perfect book for the season that we're in, for the times that we're in, not only as a nation, but even for events around you know, around the world. And uh, today we're going to be uh, in the end of Daniel chapter 2, the beginning of Daniel chapter 3. And I'm getting a little ambitious. We're going to be covering a lot of material today. Uh, there's a lot of inner dialogue and meetings that you guys aren't a part of. I'm just going to be honest. So normally I go over my time almost every week. And every week in meetings behind the scenes, you know, I say, hey, yeah, I'm really sorry, I went over. And then I get up the next week and I do it again. And so our teams are kind of accustomed to that. And so I'm going to work super hard, even though I'm being really ambitious in what I'm going to try to cover to uh, get through this in the allotted time. But I'd really appreciate it if you guys would say something along the lines of, Pastor Brad, we believe in you. We know you can do it. So would you guys just kind of talk back to me today and go, Pastor Brad, we know you can do it. You ready? Pastor Brad. Yeah, you know what? You were so half-hearted, but that's okay because the truth is I'm not really sure I can do it either. So it's all good. We're, we're all on the same page. Now, but here's what I'm going to do. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to... I'm gonna, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite books. It's a book I have in my office as kind of a springboard to get us into Daniel chapter 3 today. Now, I don't know what this says about me, that this is one of my favorite books, but it is in my office, and it's called The Worst Case Scenario Handbook. And you're like, that's your favorite? It's one of your favorite books? Yeah, I mean, it has chapters like this. How to escape from quicksand, how to wrestle an alligator if you have an interest in doing that, how to break down a door, how to land a plane. I mean, you know, any kind of thing you can think of. And one of the little chapters in this book is actually, what do you do when you encounter a bear? Now, that wouldn't be helpful necessarily here in Indiana, but if you like to vacation in Gatlinburg or in the Smoky Mountains, um, this could, I mean, this this chapter could literally save your life this morning. Now, you never thought that your life could be saved by simply showing up and going to church this morning. But literally, if you're going to vacation in Gatlinburg, it could. So I'm going to see how you're going to do or how you would do if you encountered a bear in the wild. So the way we're going to do this is uh, we're just going to kind of walk through and the things that you think are true, you yell out true, or if you think they're false, you yell out false, okay? But uh, one or the other. All right, so if you cross paths with a bear, you should. The first one is lie still and quiet. Documented attacks or bear attacks demonstrate that a black bear attack will often end when the person stops fighting. Do you think that's true or false? Yes, yeah, so we're divided, and the correct answer, it's actually true. Uh, so this one is true. Now, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to come to one in a moment that's going to sound contradictory to this one, but I'll let you know um, how the two fit together in a moment. Here's another one. True or false? Bring honey to bribe the bear. Bears love honey. True or false? Yeah, good, yeah, no, don't try to bribe the bear with honey. That one is indeed false. Here's the next one. 
Don't climb a tree to escape the bear. Black bears can climb a tree much faster than you. True or false? Absolutely true. Well done. So far, you, most of you would survive, right? Okay, so here's another one. And this is the one that sounds contradictory to number one. Strike the bear in the snout or eyes with anything you can find. True or false? Yeah, that's absolutely true. If you can find a rock, a stick, anything you can get. Uh, the way this fits in with the first one is if you strike the bear in the snout with a rock and it doesn't quit attacking you, Drop the rock, lie still, and act like you're dead. And many often cases, the bears will just walk away. Here's another one, true or false. Talk loudly, clap, or sing as you hike. It doesn't pay to surprise a bear. True or false? Absolutely true. Well done. Uh, and then lastly, uh, this one, if you're in a group, run. You won't be able to outrun the bear, but you will probably be able to outrun the slowest person in your group. True or false? Okay, now, all right, listen. Technically, that's true, but you remember Jesus' overarching command was, love one another as I've loved you, right? So if, this, if we did this, we wouldn't be the most loving people in the world, right? We certainly wouldn't be fulfilling Jesus' command to love others, and we wouldn't be offering ourselves as Jesus offered himself for us. So technically it's true, but for a Christian, what should the answer be to this one? Yeah, false, right? I mean, really, we, we want to stay together and see what happens. Okay, all right, so hey, it looks, seems to me like you guys kind of passed that little test. Now, the premise for a book like this is simple. The premise is this, you just never know. You just never know. And there's a second premise, and that's this. People make mistakes. So in the wild, when somebody makes a mistake, how do you recover from that? Because people are prone to make mistakes. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the worst mistake you could ever make. We're going to learn this chapter from this from Daniel chapter 3 with one of the most amazing stories about this you'll encounter in all of Scripture. And, um, and that mistake is this. Don't, don't compromise spiritually. Uh, spiritual compromise. Don't do that. Avoid that. Don't make, if you're, whatever mistakes you're going to make, don't make that mistake. Now, um, what we're going to do first is we're going to interpret, we're going to talk a little bit about the dream that Greg just read about that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar, and then we're going to move into chapter 3 and talk a little bit about spiritual compromise. Now, as you'll remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream last week that kept him awake, right? We said last week that dreams were the one thing the king couldn't control. Even though he controlled all of the world and all of the people of the world, he couldn't control his fate or his future and that kept him awake at night and and we said hey neither can we right we can't control our fate or our future but we know the one who does and so surrendering to him makes all the difference 
Now, in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a dazzlingly large statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, and arms of silver, uh, a midriff of bronze, uh, and then iron, and then feet of mixed with iron and clay, right? And Daniel tells the king that his statue stands for four kingdoms, and that his kingdom represents the head of that statue, the gold, and then that each... Uh, subsequent kingdom represents an an inferior kingdom in some way but then in the dream a big rock comes and smashes the statue and then this rock that smashed the statue literally grows into a gigantic mountain and Daniel tells the king that this rock represents the kingdom of God and it starts out small in this dream right and he tells him that one day this that small rock is going to come and it's going to smash all the kingdoms of this world and grow into a mountain of righteousness under the reign of God's rule. And there's a lot of scholarship. A lot of people have spent tremendous time trying to identify these four kingdoms. And you can look into that if you want to, uh, but I don't think that's what's most important about this dream. Today, I want to focus on what this dream tells us about the kingdom of of God right because Daniel tells us that this rock smashes um, all the other kingdoms and that the kingdom of God is going to be an eternal kingdom so what can we learn about the kingdom of God from this dream well first of all the statue is a product in this dream right of human design and human ingenuity the rock is not the rock um, you know God just made the rock right Uh, it's supernatural Now, also, the rock, think about this, is the least valuable substance in this dream. I mean, you have gold, you have silver, you have bronze, you have iron, you have clay. And each of those are manufactured and refined and therefore more valuable than rock. So why did God use a rock to characterize his kingdom? Why? And it's because in the eyes of the world, the kingdom of God does not look all that valuable or all that appealing. It's not shiny. It doesn't glitter. It doesn't glow. It doesn't glisten. And I want you to notice, too, that the rock grows. It starts small in the dream. And even in a small state, it's powerful enough to crush all of the kingdoms of the world. And only then does it grow into this mighty mountain, right? And this tells us that the kingdom of God is a gradual thing. It's a growing thing. And it started, it begins in service, It grows in service. I mean, Jesus talked a great deal about this. He would tell stories and he would say, you know, the kingdom of God is like just a tiny bit of yeast that you would take and throw into this huge vat of bread. And just this little tiny bit of yeast will completely transform this huge vat of bread. Uh, You know, so he really was um, mimicking what Daniel is telling us here, right? And this also tells us that the kingdom of God is kind of an already not yet thing, right? In other words, it's both at the same time. It is true that one day Jesus will come back and establish the one true uh, eternal kingdom through his reign. Um, But it's not here yet. 
but yet it's partly here right now. It's here among us in the present. And you say, well, how can that be? How can it be already but not yet? Well, here's how. The kingdom is here, friends, in the sense that the king is here. In other words, King Jesus lives and moves and breathes in us and among us as we gather and that means that he is here right now and so the kingdom is here in the sense that the king of that kingdom is here does that make sense and so his goal is to establish the power of the kingdom of God in each and every one of us before he will come and physically do that um, in and with our world Now, let me just make an application about the kingdom of God from what we've just said together. So if you're here this morning and you flit from church to church and, you know, you refuse to get deeply involved or get into authentic community with other people, if you kind of stay on the periphery and you never get around to serving or taking on a ministry and man if they say something that ticks you off you're just out of there and you go like right to the next church if you so again if you kind of flip from church to church you will now listen to me you will never grow in the power of the kingdom of God You'll never learn how to do that. You you just never will. Because the kingdom of God came in the power of a cross. And it began with service. The service of the king, right? The kingdom began with a God that served and didn't look the other way in our hour of need. It began with a God who didn't pretend that the world would be just fine without him or without his sacrifice on the cross. And we are called to to follow him in that. To, to live in the kingdom through serving in the way that he served. And here's what Jesus said about his ministry. He said, look, I didn't come to be served or uh, to serve, uh, but to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to be a servant. Service is how people bump up against the power and the might of the kingdom of God. And so if you're on the periphery and not engaged and not in community and not serving, not engaged in a ministry, you will never know the power, the might of the kingdom of God. And let me just say this, like this dazzling figure, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? Jesus has become the dazzling figure who alone is worthy of your worship and mine. He has become, uh, Jesus has become the rock that would break apart these, the kingdoms that men would build. He's become the stone that the builders rejected and it is, it is upon the rock of confessing his name that he said he would build his church. And also like Daniel, Jesus has been given two names. He is the Son of God, 
and he is the son of man. And by the way, the the term son of man was Jesus' favorite term that he used for himself. Guess where that term came from? It came from this book that we're studying. It came from the book of Daniel. And so just as Daniel has been given two names, our Jesus has been given two names. The kingdom of God has come into the world because the king of that kingdom has come into the world. And that means he is here now in this place and it means he is in charge, in control, and that he is invincible. And that one day every kingdom of our world, including the kingdom that you and I live in today, will one day end... Listen, men and women, there was a time when Roman citizens would look around at the world and they would say, Rome is going to live forever. The kingdom of Rome is going to exist forever. I mean, there is nothing that could happen that would make this kingdom go away. And in the same way that the kingdom of Rome has vanished, one day there will not be an America And this is why a Christian's primary allegiance has to be to Scripture and not to the Constitution of the United States of America. The Word of God has to have our primary allegiance because it is the only document that represents eternity and an eternal kingdom and an eternal perspective. Now, On the heels of Daniel, so that's the dream. We're going to put that away, and we're going to move into chapter 3, and it's tied to what we just talked about in chapter 2, because one day, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue. It's not the same statue that um, Daniel interpreted in his dream. We don't know what it was. And it's not just a small, kind of of out-of-the-way little statue. No. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 says it this way. Let's pull that up. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, here's how this is connected to the dream. In the dream, you remember, Daniel told the king... Hey, your kingdom represents the head of gold. And so what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here is he's, he's taking Daniel's dream a step further and he's saying, hey, well, if my kingdom's the best kingdom, let's erect a monument. We don't know what it was. It's very vague in the story. In fact, what, one thing we, we probably know from the story is this wasn't even like a, a god of Babylon. Many of you know Babylon was polytheistic. It worshipped many gods. This didn't even represent a god. What it most likely represented was the power and the might of the Babylonian kingdom and so what King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do by building this statue and then insisting that people pay homage to it that they bow down to it and worship it is he's trying to consolidate his power what I'm telling you is this isn't just a religious deal I'm telling you this is a political deal because Babylon had conquered lots of countries and there were lots of different kinds of people living there that worshiped lots of different kind of gods and so what he's trying to get them to do is see the benefit and the value of living in Babylon and being part of that kingdom and living as a united people Right? And so he makes it of gold and he makes it large. Why? 
because he wanted to demonstrate the greatness of the Babylonian kingdom and how cool it was that everybody got to live there and be part of that kingdom, right? Uh, Super important deal. Um, And the king orders that at the coronation of this statue, you know, all the instruments are going to play. And this is very artfully told in Daniel chapter 3. You can open up your Bibles. You can kind of see how he, how he does it. But the king orders that everyone bow down. When the music starts to play, everybody has to get down like this and just pay homage to the, to the greatness of the Babylonian kingdom, right? Again, just as kind of a power move. And literally, in verse 7, it says this, As soon as they were hearing the music, people were falling on the ground. In other words, it was almost like it was a race to see who could hit the ground first to pay homage to the great kingdom of Babylon, right? So everybody's doing it except for three men. Now remember, at the end of chapter 2, Daniel's been promoted. He's not with his three friends anymore. And you probably know his friends by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want to point out something. A lot of times we think, well, there were hundreds of thousands of people there, and they all bowed down except these three guys, and they're kind of standing there together. And that's actually not true. They would have had to have stood, because see, they were each assigned sections of people to govern. And they would have been in separate sections of the crowd um, as administrators of those people. So they would have had to have remained standing by themselves, like apart in the crowd. And so I want you to picture this, because this is a big deal, right? There's this crowd and there's a ripple of noise and it's quiet at first, but it grows louder until it's heard above the music. I mean, suddenly nobody in the crowd is looking at the statue anymore, whatever it symbolized, in an act that looks like either monumental courage or suicidal fallacy. There are three men and three men only who are not standing. Because remember, Daniel's not there. He's somewhere else. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now remember that these men, we know this from chapter 1, they had powerful enemies. They've risen very quickly through the ranks of the Babylonian hierarchy. So when this happens, uh, jealousy comes up. And so uh, there are people who are looking not only to get rid of these men, but to get their seats at the table. So they go to the king and they say this, At this time, some astrologers, these would be high-ranking people, but people who were serving under Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You've issued a decree that these three men who serve on your team, they won't obey it. And then they try to incriminate these guys anymore. They say, not only do the Jews refuse to worship your gods, but they also won't pay homage to the statue you've set up. This is another reason we know this probably wasn't a statue set up for a Babylonian god. Uh, Because if it was, they wouldn't have separated the two, but they didn't. And this is another reason why we believe this was probably just something to symbolize the greatness of the Babylonian Empire. And this kind of leads us to the first principle of compromise. You want to know what it is? 
Sometimes compromise looks like just doing what everybody else is doing. Remember, it was like a race, right? Everybody couldn't wait to bow down and pay homage to the greatness of the Babylonian kingdom. And there were only three men out of hundreds of thousands of people that remained standing. So sometimes compromise just looks like doing what everybody else is doing. And one scholar notes that this story in the Old Testament may be the first historical account of religious persecution. You know, all because these other cabinet members are kind of jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So we read in verses 12 and 13 what they say to the king. They say this, Uh, uh, they say, look, well, I already told you that, so let's move on to King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Uh, Here's his reaction. It says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear, so he kind of goes through and you, this is a phrase that's been repeated in the story over and over again. He says, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have set up, very good. In other words, he's giving them another chance. He's saying, all right, I'm going to give you another shot to bow down and pay homage to this symbol of the greatness of Babylon but if then he then he gives them the threat and we know he'll follow through on this threat he says but if you do not worship it you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace Uh, and then he says then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand now when you ask a question like this in the Bible it it means that what he what he's what what we're meant to understand is that well there's no God that would be able to rescue you from the fiery furnace. I mean, that's just not going to happen if I throw you into the furnace. In other words, what he's saying is, look, why would you refuse to do this? Because your God's not going to save you when I throw you into the fire. So why don't you just do what everybody else is doing and bow down and worship, right? Um, So, listen... The reply that we're about to read together is so incredible and so amazing, and there's so much that we can glean and learn from it. But, so, but the dilemma is they're either going to be burned alive or they're going to you know, bow down and pay homage to the greatness of Babylon, right? And so um, here's what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I mean, these are unbelievable words. How do hearts get formed this way? And they say this, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He can rescue us from your hand, O king. So he's saying, they're saying, oh no, there is a God who can rescue us from the blazing furnace. His name is Yahweh, it's Jehovah, and he can do it, right? So that's really what they're saying. They're, and they say, look, um, he's able. 
Now listen, so here's two things that will keep you from compromise. The first is this. Notice in their response that they say, hey, oh king, we don't have to give you an answer in this. What they're saying is, king, we're not accountable ultimately to you. We're accountable to someone su supremely high on the food chain, and he's higher even than you. We're not accountable ultimately to you. We are accountable to a higher and bigger authority than you. So the first question to help you avoid compromise is you got to answer the question, who am I here to serve? Who am I here to serve? Who am I ultimately accountable to for how I live my one and only life? Is it the President of the United States? Is it my husband or my wife? Is it my small group leader? Is it my boss? Who are you ultimately accountable to? And the answer to that question in church, right, would be we're ultimately accountable to Jesus. He is our higher authority. He is supremely high on the food chain. In other words, why would we be ultimately accountable to a president who's going to die and whose kingdom is ultimately going to shrivel up and go away one day anyway when we can be accountable to the king of the one true, eternal, unchanging kingdom that's going to smash all the kingdoms of this world apart anyway? That's what he's saying. So they say, look, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is they say, look, king, you just said what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. We know that God. And his name is Yahweh. It's Jehovah. That's the God that we serve. Our God is able. And this leads, listen, friends, if you don't believe your God is able, you will reach for the first shiny, glittery object that you can find that you think will give you stability and help in a troubled world. If you don't believe Jesus is able to rescue you and help you and see you through, you'll reach for things that you think will, like, for example, money. See, one of the reasons that the Bible talks so plainly and so clearly about the power of money is because money makes all the, many of the same promises that God does. It promises options. It promises power. It promises control. Right? It promises you freedom. And this is why when people, you know, if they say, hey, I don't believe in God or, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe in a spiritual world, what they're going to probably most likely chase and pursue is money because money makes many of the same promises that God does, right? You're going to reach for anything that you think will give you control, will see you through, will protect you in a time of uncertainty, and money, you know, is one of those things, right? But they say, look, not only is our God real, but he is able. He is able. He made everything that is. He stands above time, above space, and above history. And he's making himself known among all the peoples of the earth, right? And he is able to save us from the furnace. He is able to deliver us from your hand. The God we serve is able. And, and I would just say this, Knowing that God is able, knowing that Jesus is bigger than our world and bigger than your circumstances, 
knowing that will if you know that it means you don't have to reach for the first thing that comes along you don't have to compromise let me tease this out a little bit so back in the 90s i refer to this movie from time to time there was a disney movie that came out it was called honey i shrunk the kids remember that one and then they made a whole stream of movies after that, like, you know, Honey, I Shrunk Myself, Honey, I Shrunk the Laundry. I mean, it went on and on. It was like, you know, there were four or five of these things. Um, and, I think, and I think that if they were to make a movie about the church in America here in 2020, it would, it would be called Honey, I Shrunk My God. My God is not able. My God is not present. And so I'm going to freak out at world events and I'm going to wring my hands at all the uncertainty and all that's going on in the world and I'm just going to retreat and just suck my thumb and rock in my chair because the world's just too big and uncertain and not credible. And I think that there are churches in the United States, if you made a movie about their lives, it would be called, Honey, I Shrunk My God. Well, guess what? Not here. We're not going to do that. We're not going to wring our hands at a world seemingly out of control because we know the one who holds the world in his hands. We know the one who is bigger than our circumstances and bigger than our times and bigger even than a global pandemic. It's Jesus. It's him and it's always only been him, right? And so the reason that these three men lived with such faith, the reason they could utter such incredible, faith-filled, non-compromising words is because they knew, first of all, who they were accountable to, and they knew that he was able. They knew that he could rescue them from the furnace if he wanted to, and it wouldn't even be hard. But what comes next that they say is even more amazing, because here's what they go on and say. They say, but even if he does not, O oh king, he can do it. He can save us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't show up, what they're saying is this. Even if you burn us alive, even if you take our very lives, we will not pay homage to the greatness of the Babylonian empire the only greatness we will recognize is the greatness of our god the greatness of our god so even if he does not we will not bow down and pay homage to the greatness of babylon and this is the third thing and this is so important have you made the decision that you will serve god even when he does not even when he does not answer your prayers the way that you want him to. Even when he does not act in your life the way that you wish that he would. Will you serve a God even when he does not? Because somehow 
these men got a dose of God that they said, look, even if he disappoints us, and I want you to think about this. We talk a lot about this. We talk a lot about how Daniel and his three friends, right, how they prayed and God raised them up in the Babylonian Empire. And then in chapter 2, we talk about how they gathered and they prayed and God gave Daniel the ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? But I want you to think of all the prayers these young men must have prayed that God didn't answer. And this is super, super important to kind of think this through and see this through. I mean, surely they prayed that their country wouldn't be invaded by Babylon and that they would be safe in Jerusalem. And God didn't answer that prayer. Surely they prayed that the temple would be destroyed, that their house of worship and their homes wouldn't be destroyed. And God didn't answer that prayer. Surely they would have prayed for King Nebuchadnezzar to get right with God. God didn't seem to be answering that prayer. Right? I mean, they were just getting in deeper and deeper water with him. Certainly they'd prayed that no other edict like this would get put out and that you know they would get to stay safe and kind of in the background and serve and not be thrust into this discussion. Maybe they even prayed that if they stood up, God would make them invisible and nobody else would see it, right? Certainly they prayed that they wouldn't have to face a fiery furnace and yet here they are. See, there's all these prayers that these men prayed along the way, and God did not. And we live in a world where sometimes, right, in His great love, in His great knowledge, sometimes God does not. So will you serve God even when He does not in your life? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Yes, we will. Even if he doesn't rescue us from the furnace, we're not going to bend the knee, right? We're just not going to do it. Now, here's what's so interesting. You know, one of the prayers we know they prayed from Jeremiah 29, we looked at that a few weeks ago, is we know they prayed for the king, and we know they prayed for King Nebuchadnezzar to get right with their God, to acknowledge the greatness of of their God, right? And what's going to happen is later in the book, that is going to happen. But do you know why it's going to happen? It's because God is going to put them in front of a fiery furnace. So I wonder, do you think they'd have prayed for King Nebuchadnezzar to come to know the greatness of their God if it meant that they were going to have to endure a fiery furnace? But that's exactly what it would mean. And I'm sure they didn't know that when they were praying for their king to recognize the greatness, you know, of their God. And I tell you, friends, when you bump up against somebody like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it changes you. So when I was a young man, before I went into ministry, um, I went to work when I graduated from Marshall University at a place called the Ohio Center for Youth and Family Development, and it was filled with um, young people who'd been ordered by the court, ordered by a judge, adjudicated youth, to be in this facility. And we were, I was responsible for the 24 hours of programming for each of these units um, in, this, uh, in this facility. 
And as you might expect, it was a rough facility. There was a lot of fighting, uh, a lot of, I mean, everybody was tough. And in those days, you know, we physically restrained these students. And we would put, you know, straight jackets on them to keep them from harming themselves or others. I mean, this was the real deal, right? Well, when I went to work there, uh, I met a man. His name was Kevin. Kevin had a similar position to me, but Kevin had come out of ministry. Kevin had been a pastor. Kevin had even gone to Dallas Theological Seminary, which was where I wanted to go to school. But here he was working at this place called the Ohio Center for Youth and Family Development. So I asked him why, and over time, as I got to know him, came to admire him, I found out that Kevin had the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because here was a story that Kevin told me. He said that uh, out of seminary, he went into the pastorate. He was hired by a church, and for the first few months, it went fine. But then he began to notice that when the church would pay him, back in that day, they didn't have direct deposit. They would hand him a check. He would take the check to the bank, and the check, sometimes the checks would bounce. And so he went back to the church, you know, leaders and said, hey, uh, this check bounced. And they would say, oh, well, we're so sorry. We must not have enough money in our account. We'll make it up to you at the next paycheck. So then he would go and deposit that paycheck and it also would bounce. And this went on for three months. And every two weeks, the church leaders would look him in the eye and they would say, no no problem, we'll make it up. You know, we'll make it up next time. We'll make it up next time. And so for three months, Kevin didn't get paid. And finally he decided, look, so I have to step down. I have to resign. Um, And he left. He went to another church. And this new church welcomed him with open arms. They loved him. They loved his wife. They loved his family. He had three girls. They loved up on those girls. Uh, One family in this church in particular really seemed to care for Kevin and his family. I mean, they purchased appliances for them in their home. They frequently took them out to dinner and, you know, paid for nice dinners. The husband of this family was a Sunday school teacher and a leader in this church. But in Kevin's third year uh, at this church, it was discovered that this man, who they'd become such good friends with, had been molesting as many as 25 children in this church. And one of those children was his oldest daughter. The man was tried, and he was sentenced to prison. And Kevin told me with tears in his eyes about the pain of his daughter and the pain of his wife and about his own pain and about the pain that this, that they, just for his whole church, how devastating, you know, this was. But Kevin was no ordinary man. He was of the ilk of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because Kevin determined 
in his heart that he was going to forgive this man. He visited this man in prison and forgave him. The, the town that Kevin pastored in, they wrote a newspaper article about it. His church began to grow. People began to come to Jesus. But Kevin's sweet wife just couldn't shake the pain of this molestation. She couldn't get past it. And so Kevin made the painful decision that he would step down from this ministry and, and have a season in his life where he would just allow his wife to heal and become whole again through the pain of, you know, having one church appointment where the church deceives and refuses to pay them and then going to another church where you know his daughter gets molested by his very best friend in the church and and so that's why he was at the ohio center for youth and family development but his hope and his prayer and he would ask me to pray regularly he would say pray that one day i'll be able to go back into ministry pray emotional and spiritual healing for my wife who's so broken hearted over all of this but you know i want to lead her well and i want to be a good husband for her and so that's why he was there Men and women, listen, when you run into somebody of the ilk of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it changes you. And those are the kind of men God is calling us to be. This is the, we are called to be those kinds of men, those kinds of followers. People who will, who will serve God even when He does not even when he does not answer prayer in the way that we would choose or that we would like, even when our lives don't turn out the way we thought they should or the way that we envisioned it. They didn't shake an angry fist at God and say, well, screw it, you know, we're out of here, right? No, they said, even if he does not, he's able but even if he does not, we won't do it. So this leads to the third question I have to ask you. Will you continue to serve God even when he does not? Because we live in a world when, where sometimes God does not. He's able. I mean, Jesus has got the whole world in his hands. But sometimes he doesn't. In, he's in charge and he's in control, but sometimes he's not in control and in charge in a way that you and I would always agree, right? And so will we be steadfast followers of Jesus even when he does not? Will you? It's a key to compromise because, friends, listen, if you decide the first time that Jesus disappoints you with a decision, and you'll bolt, if you're not resolved to this, you'll just bolt and you'll reach for anything shiny else that will get you through. And there's a better way. The way of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And next week, we're going to see how their story turns out and think about what the furnace in this story means and how it um, represents you and me. But that's a sermon for another day. Hey, so I'm finished officially. 
and uh, I'm probably a little bit over, a couple of minutes probably, but hey, that was pretty good, right? You guys proud of me that I, no, listen, don't, no, don't clap, I'll tell you why, because next week I'll probably be 10 or 15 minutes over like I usually am, okay? So it'll be back to normal next week, but thank you for believing in me anyway. All right, so I'm going to call the team up, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond to our God. You know, if you're in the room, what that means for you is we want you to be engaged in who you're singing about. We want you to be engaged in the words that you're singing. Uh, and so that's the way many of us are going to need to be to respond, right? Maybe you want to bring an offering. We have offering boxes in the front of the room and in the back of the room. This would be a time to do that. If you're online, you can click the chat link and you can do all the same things we're actually doing here in the room. You can uh, sign up for a small group. You can uh, submit a prayer request. You can uh, give even online if that's what God puts on your heart to do. But however God would lead you, maybe you're in the room and you need prayer. Listen, we will come down. We'd be honored to pray for you. Uh, you know, we'll socially distance. We don't need to, uh, you know, necessarily touch you. Uh, if you're comfortable with that, we'll even do that as well. Uh, but we'll just let your conscience lead the way in the way that you receive that prayer, right? Um, but either way, I don't know how you need to respond to God, but I know this. You need to respond to God today in some way. Maybe some of you are here, and in light of what I said, you need to make a decision. Kind of in your seat. God, I will serve you even when you do not. God, I'm going to begin to believe every day that you are able, and I will not be part of the movie production Honey, I think I shrunk my God, right? So let me pray for you, and then we're going to just respond together. Let me ask you to stand, and I'll pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you are here, that you are real. We are grateful, Lord Jesus, that you are big, that you are able, far bigger than our world and far bigger than our problems. And finally, Lord Jesus, we, we confess not only that you are able, but we say as best we can today that we will serve you even when you do not. So God, give us that courage, that conviction by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you speak that resolve into our hearts and into our minds today? We ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. So let's respond and sing to our God together.